Building influence is something anyone can learn. It's an investment you can make in yourself and it can hold the keys to achieving your dreams and having the life and impact you want to have. I'm Laura Cox Kaplan. I've learned a lot over three decades about building and sustaining influence and how using it and using it effectively can make a big, big difference in your life and career. Here on She Said, She Said podcast, we're digging into the different dimensions that help us build and sustain influence. If you thought being an influencer was just for social media, think again. Whether you're starting a business, raising money for a cause, negotiating a promotion, running your household, or trying to connect with those who don't share your views, understanding and using the different dimensions of influence will increase your chances of success, whatever your goals may be. Listening to She Said, She Said podcast is a smart, efficient investment you can make in you. I'm really glad you're here and I'm excited we're on this journey together. Hey friend, welcome to She Said, She Said. Ever think about taking on a side hustle? Or maybe taking an existing side hustle and actually turning it into a full-scale business? Well, today's conversation is about that, but it's also about what motivated one determined mom to find safe snacks for her daughter who suffers from life-threatening allergies. Denise Woodard is the founder and CEO of Partake Foods. Now, Partake is a nationally distributed allergy-friendly snack and baking mix company. You can find Partake in more than 6,000 retailers like Target and Whole Foods all across the country, but you can also find them on their website. And I've included a link in the show notes where you can purchase the product for yourself. Denise is also the first woman of color to raise more than a million dollars in seed capital for a food startup. Now, she did that back in 2021, and since that time, she has far surpassed that number and attracted the attention and support of a host of big-name investors, including Jay-Z and Rihanna, to name just two. But that latest success came only after enduring almost 100 separate rejections. In today's conversation, Denise and I talk about how to weather and learn from rejection, which, let's face it, can be incredibly demoralizing. We also talk about Denise's career pivot from marketing executive at Coca-Cola to entrepreneur. We talk about the most important components to include when crafting a pitch for your business or for yourself. We also talk about a few considerations to keep in mind before cashing in your 401k or your engagement ring to invest in your business, as Denise did. In other words, how do you know if your passion project is really a good investment? Denise shares some great perspective on that topic. But one of my favorite moments in this conversation actually comes toward the end when I ask Denise about self-doubt and imposter syndrome. Friend, you will love what she told me, so be sure you don't miss it. My conversation today with Denise is part of our ongoing collaboration series with the Southern Cooterie. The Southern Cooterie, of course, is a network of creative entrepreneurs and founders who are working to build strong businesses 
while also supporting each other in the process. It is a terrific organization, as you've heard me talk about, if you've been listening to She Said, She Said podcast. I am honored to be a member and also very honored to be hosting this collaboration series this year. I've learned so much from the incredible women who have joined me, and I hope the same has been true for you. And if you've missed any part of the conversations in this series, be sure and go back and check them out. You'll find them here at She Said, She Said podcast. They're available on our website at shesaidshesaidpodcast.com or wherever you listen to podcasts. Regardless of your career or life aspirations, I think you'll find the advice and inspiration you hear is a great investment in you. For now, here is my conversation with Denise Woodard. Denise, welcome to She Said, She Said. Hi, Laura. I'm so excited to be having this conversation today. Well, I'm really happy to have you, and I am excited for folks to learn a bit more about you and your story and Partake. So why don't we jump right in? Let's start with Partake. What is that, and how did this company get started? Sure. So Partake is a natural food brand that makes allergy-friendly cookies, baking mixes, and pancake and waffle mixes. And the company got started because my now seven-year-old daughter, Vivian, has a lot of food allergies. She's allergic to eggs and corn and tree nuts and bananas, which is also an unusual combination. Mm -hmm. And I was really frustrated with the lack of options that I could find for her that met my nutritional standards and satisfied her taste buds. And frankly, that were brands that were coming from brands that I felt like she could share confidently and that her other friends would be eating and where she wouldn't feel left out of so many social events. And I couldn't find anything that met my uh, family's needs. And so had the idea for Partake in the summer of 2016 and left my career in corporate America in August of 2017 to launch the company. Yeah, it's an amazing story on many levels. And I've heard you talk about how scary it was at the point in which you realized that your daughter Vivian had um, really a life-threatening allergy. You were not though at the time necessarily looking for a side hustle. Maybe talk about the, the transition and the challenge of you know recognizing that you had a problem to solve but also not necessarily being in a position where you were like okay looking for something to do. I had spent nearly a decade at Coca-Cola. I was leading sales for their venturing and emerging brands group. And so I had the fortunate position of being to, able to work with all of these emerging, fast growth, mission-driven brands like Honest Tea or Honest Kids. And I loved what I was doing. So to your point, I had no intention of leaving. Um, but I was so frustrated with what existed for my daughter that I felt like I needed to do something about it. And I also felt like um, pretty serendipitously, the universe also showed me that. Um, I remember this story. I was in line at the zoo on a Saturday and I was telling my husband that our babysitter actually, who has some equity in the company had said like, all you do is complain about the things you can't find for your daughter. You need to do something about it. You need to start a company. And I was telling my husband, Jeremy, you won't believe what Martha said. And this, just like in a movie, this man turned around from in front of us in line and said, it sounds like you have a good idea. You should enter this pitch competition. And this was on a Saturday afternoon and the, 
application period closed on that Monday at midnight. And I went home and I incorporated a business and it was called Vivi's Life LLC because I really didn't know what I wanted to accomplish other than I wanted to make Vivi, my daughter, her life a bit easier. And so I created this LLC and I entered the pitch competition and I ended up winning with just an idea. And I won $10,000 in seed capital, which was really helpful. But the bigger thing that came out of it was it came with some local press, which forced me to tell my employer about my idea because the last thing I needed was them to see me in the newspaper, like local woman starts allergy friendly food company. <laughs> and while they were generally supportive of the idea, they were like, if you actually do this and you actually have a product you're selling, there is a significant conflict of interest here and you got to hit the road. And that is what gave me the kick in the butt to actually put this in motion. Yeah. Was it hard for you to make that shift, though, even at that point, uh, turning your back on a corporate career that you had worked for for 12 years? If I'm being honest, it wasn't. I was so passionate about Partake, well, Vivi's life at the time. Yeah. It was all I could think about every early morning, late night, weekends. Like it was I, I couldn't have stayed in my career because I would have always wondered what if. Mm -hmm. There's a big shift that you have to make in embracing entrepreneurship and all that goes with that that's so very different from corporate jobs. I came out of a corporate job to do this little entrepreneurial experience, which is very different from what you're talking about. But the one similarity is that you don't have legions of people around you <laughs> to solve all the problems that honest to goodness, I never really thought about IT support and how important that would be among many, many other things. Who's going to order the copy paper? Who's going to do, you know, just an endless number of things that you simply took for granted. Maybe talk about um, was entrepreneurship in your background? Were you raised with entrepreneurs or sort of how did you how did you make this shift? E even was, sort of embracing it and wanting to do it. It's still, you know, the, the, the transition can be hard. Well, I think I had a sense of false confidence. I thought I work with all these emerging brands. I understand. And that probably gave me, I'm glad that it did, because had I known you have to order the copy paper and get the <laughs> office cleaned and figure out cybersecurity, would I have taken the leap? I don't know. I'm glad <laughs> that I did. But, um, you know, entrepreneurship definitely runs in my family. My dad was in the U.S. Army. I grew up in um, Fayetteville or Fort Bragg, North Carolina. Um, he was in the Army for a while. And after that, he got out and he was an over-the-road truck driver. And he saved up enough money to buy a truck for himself. And then he bought another truck and another truck. And he runs a small trucking company in North Carolina. So I had seen firsthand the sense of ownership and pride that comes with being an entrepreneur, but also the endless amount of work and the buck stops with you, good or bad. Um, so I'd seen that. And I think through my dad's experience, knowing how hard and all consuming it is to be an entrepreneur, he was like, go to corporate America, don't ever leave corporate America, not excited about the idea of partake initially. Um, but I'd always had a bit of an entrepreneurial spirit. I can't remember a time in my life where I didn't have a side hustle. When I was at Coke, I had an eBay business that was bringing in six figures. Then I had a ticket brokering business. And so I always wanted to do something that felt like it belonged to me. I just never had an idea that I was super passionate about or that I thought was scalable until Partake came along. Yeah. What was the biggest challenge that you faced in launching the company? Well, I 
two of the big ones were to even get started were where am I going to make this and how am I going to make it? Um, because of our brand proposition around being allergy friendly, we couldn't go to like a commercial kitchen or I couldn't make the product in my kitchen because I needed to be able to keep this promise that our products were made in an allergy friendly environment. And there's not very many allergy friendly manufacturers in the US and the ones that exist are working with very large companies. And so I found one I wanted to work with and convincing them to work with a random woman who called cold called them was definitely a challenge. Um, the way that I ended up solving for it was I ran a Kickstarter campaign and I thought, well, I'll show them that other people want this product. And it ended up finishing in the top 1% of Kickstarter campaigns for food, Amazing. but that might not have worked out the way that like, you know, I went into the Kickstarter, not really having a place to make the product. Um, and I went to the team at the, the manufacturer saying, I'll show you that people want this, but not really knowing if the Kickstarter was going to perform well. <laughs> Thankfully, they both did. And then figuring out how to make the product. I'm a pretty mediocre baker. And to be able to keep this brand proposition of tastes good without the top nine allergens and made with ingredients you can actually understand proved to be more than I could handle. Um, but thanks to some cold emailing and looking around, I was able to find a woman, Lindsay, who's an absolute dream and helped me bring that vision to life and still works with us to this day. Yeah. The, in, in the early days, though, you were experimenting in your own kitchen. You were coming up with recipes and you were doing the baking. Yes. Kind of, not really. I okay. tried and then I failed horribly and was <laughs> like, if we are going to turn this into a company, I need help which has been like a true a story that continues to ring true. Like looking like me trying, but then realizing like, if, if this isn't my skill set, then I need to surround myself with the people that know how to do it. And I need to ask for help because we're never going to get anywhere. If, it, if it's just me, um, you know, trying to figure out everything on my own. Yeah. Yeah. Your background at Coca-Cola was in marketing. T talk about what difference that made and maybe a particular skill set that you had that some that someone else launching out on their own might not have. Sure. So through my time at Coke, I had a variety of sales and marketing roles. And I think what they showed me was the importance of building a brand and how I think oftentimes entrepreneurs think of a brand as like a logo or something like that. But it's really every single touch point somebody has with your company. It's how your employees talk to internal and external stakeholders. It's how your customer service rep responds to an inquiry. It's what your brand t-shirts look like. It's what your images across social media look like. And making sure that I was very clear about that and protective of that from day one, um, even when we didn't have money to, to really invest in the business, making sure that I was very, very clear about what this brand was and what it wasn't and that we held very true to that is something that I gained from my experience at Coke. Mm -hmm. Were there um, some initial sort of initial challenges to that or, or maybe said another way, uh, what were kind of the, the, the biggest difficulties in staying true to that mission? Maybe the things that kind of kept leading your people kept trying to lead you in a direction that was not core to your mission. Sort of what were those things? There's definitely been a lot of food trends that have emerged since we've launched, whether it was paleo or keto or adding adaptogenics to products and all kinds of things. And so there's always the, have you thought about making a keto this or mm -hmm. have you thought about doing that? And while 
there's definitely plenty of space for that. That our proposition is we make products that taste good with ingredients that you can understand that are allergy friendly. Same old American classics people have been eating for years. Um, and so I think this whole like the idea of focusing on our brand proposition and our product line, even when everyone seems to have an idea, is one thing that's been, you know, challenging to stay true to. I think another challenge was, you know, initially we couldn't afford to produce a lot of content and we couldn't afford to do shiny marketing campaigns, but I could do a local trade show and I could show up with a really nice tablecloth and I could go there and I could be kind to my customers and I could explain what I was doing and why I was doing it. And I think that's building the brand. It's things like that. It doesn't have to be a billboard. It doesn't have to be sponsoring a huge music festival. It could be literally as simple as you, the founder, going to a place and having positive interactions that represent your company with people who can be customers. Yeah. And oftentimes I know that can lead to more earned media opportunities. I mean, we had Molly Feening, who I know you know and you're, you're friends with, who uh, has been on as part of this collaborative series that we're doing with the Southern Sea. But she talked about some of the early advice that she got, she and her co-founders got when they were launching Babyators, was the importance of earned media. If you, if you have to choose between investing in earned media or investing in paid advertising, Put your put your effort into earned media. Do you think that's is that sort of how you think about it as well? For sure. Um, I think our story and why we're doing what we're doing has probably been one of the most endearing things to press and to customers and potential customers. And I'm kind of a free asset. I mean, it uses my time, but it's a great use of my time in terms of getting the story out there and getting folks to write about it or allow me the opportunity to tell the story. And that's something that we still, like in the earliest of days, relied heavily on, but rely even more heavily on now as the company has grown. Because I think that's also the thing that separates companies, like emerging brands like mine from large companies. There's a real human behind it with a real story and a real mission. And I think people want to hear that. And it doesn't hurt that your chief taste tester is also adorable. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you. Thankfully, she's a willing participant um, in the taste testing and in in the content and sharing the story. And so it's been really exciting for me to see how much, how involved she wants to be in the business. Yeah, she may have a different point of view when she turns into a teenager, but that's that's for the future. (laughs) Let's talk a little bit about raising money and the the both the challenges and the tremendous payoff that you've had more recently. But I especially would love for you to talk about how difficult that's been and being rejected numerous times. Maybe talk about. Um, kind of what that was like and how you persevered, if you had a toolkit or something that you turned to to kind of keep you keep you focused. So we initially bootstrapped the business and we were all in financially. I sold my engagement ring. I emptied my 401k. I maxed wow. out my credit cards. I wouldn't necessarily recommend anyone <laughs> two of these things, um, but I definitely underestimated how hard it would be and how long it would take to raise capital even with my background in CPG, even with the early success that we were seeing at retailers like Whole Foods and Wegmans. And I got to your point, nearly a hundred no's before we were able to raise our seed round of funding. And the thing that helped me persevere was the chief tasting officer that you uh, referenced earlier. Having a North Star that was much bigger than just wanting this business to get big and make money. Like, 
even though my daughter is young, I know that she's watching. I know that she understands why I started this company. Um, and I want her to see that you can, like, it's important to be resilient. It's important to keep going when you're doing something that you think is going to make other people's lives and your own life better. Like you have to keep going. It's not going to be an easy road. Um, you know, also having a network of peer mentors like Molly from Red Clay, who are going through a similar journey. Like I think oftentimes entrepreneurship is so glamorized. It's not glamorous. It's a lot of it's a lot of keeping your head down and doing the work and being consistent. And there's a lot of challenges. And so having a group of people and a community that you can trust and that you can celebrate, but that you can also commiserate with um, and bounce ideas off of is so important. Yeah. Notwithstanding that tremendous uh, commitment and also that that real crystal clarity on your why. When it when you get to the point of bootstrapping a business and thinking about cashing in your 401k, selling your engagement ring, all these things, what's your advice for a uh, potential entrepreneur in knowing that your idea is really worth the one uh, that you're doubling down on? So for me, I felt like we were my own consumer. Like I knew what the struggle was for a food allergy family to find products they could trust that tasted good. We were also seeing really positive business metrics. You know, had our numbers at Whole Foods and Wegmans and these retailers not been so strong, I probably would have second thought making those investments. <laughs> I, I don't think people should go that far above and beyond if they're not receiving indications that like this is an idea worth stepping out on. Um, it was the responses that we would get into our customer service inbox of people saying like this product changed my child's life that made me keep going. So I think there were definitely some quantitative metrics that I was using to determine like, should we keep going with this business? Yeah. Yeah. I would think that with a series of um, rejections, if you will, for funding before you finally manage to really strike goal, so to speak. But maybe talk about what did you learn through the course of that process? And how did you, notwithstanding your North Star or your why, how did you keep from getting really frustrated and demoralized? Or, or, or sort of what kept, I'm sure you were frustrated and demoralized, but how did you come back from that? I was definitely frustrated and demoralized. Uh, <laughs> As anybody have, would be, right? <laughs> I came back from that to, to those other points of like, I would then go look in the, the data portal for these retailers and I would see the numbers increasing week over week. I would see people were buying the product. And I think oftentimes, you know, some of those investor conversations, like, a lot of the times, like just because somebody's an investor doesn't mean they've successfully successfully run a company before. Mm -hmm. um, and so, you know, I took opinion. I, I was very open to taking opinions, but some of them I took with a grain of salt. Um, and I think that I learned on that experience, like the thing that changed when Marcy Venture Partners led our seed round. They really wanted to understand me and the mission and the values and the why behind the business in addition to the financial metrics. I think some of those other conversations were not looking at it as a, a person. It was just numbers on a piece of paper. And those probably wouldn't have been the right relationships for me to get into anyway. So what changed? I mean, once you managed to break through, you get on Jay-Z's radar, which is incredible. But what, what changed? 
So we actually had money <laughs> to, to run the business. Um, and that was in June of 2019. So we finished 2019 in about 350 stores, but with big plans for 2020. And in 2020, we ended up 10xing our revenue, building out the team, um, finishing the year in about 5,000 doors. And so that capital really allowed me to be able to invest in the growth of the business. Yeah, that's incredible. Maybe talk about advice that you've picked up along the way from other founders and entrepreneurs, uh, both those who are doing running businesses that are somewhat similar to yours, but but other businesses or things that you really took away and said, gosh, everyone should know this. This is an incredible piece of advice. There's no silver bullet. You would think that, you know, I think oftentimes people thought when Marcy led our round and we got this like big press push around Jay-Z investing in our business, that was it. You were going straight to the moon and I'm so grateful for it. But no, that's not it. Or people think when you launch nationally in Target, you've made it. Yes, I'm so proud of that relationship, but that's not it. Like you got to keep going and there's not one magic night or thing that's going to happen that's going to like turn this, turn something into a rocket ship. Um, so there's that. And just generally the idea that this is a marathon, not a sprint, like there's so many like stories of overnight successes. And when you start to peel back the onion, you realize they took 10 years in the making. And I think knowing that your own story is just that it's your own story. Your journey doesn't have to be anyone else's. And that's not a bad thing. And so just remembering that, because I think it's often hard to, it's easy to get distracted with the headlines that exist right now. Yeah. Maybe talk about um, your advice and what you learned about making the best pitch. How do you, how do you polish your pitch, whether it's for your business or something for your personal brand? How do you, how do you make sure that you're presenting your best story, your best pitch for a potential investor, potential customer? Well, you practice it over and over and it gets better with time. And then you practice it with people who you trust, who have kind of heard pitches, who you think can provide valuable feedback. And you're yourself. Um, I think, you know, for me, that's I say y'all and I'm really nice and I smile a lot. And I think other like some people would provide feedback that like you're not serious enough. And that means you're not serious about your business. But if if that's who you are, like own that, because that's the thing that makes you special. Um, and then also know your business. You need to know your business inside out. You need to know the numbers. You need to know the consumer, who the consumer is. You need to know how you're going to grow the business, why you're going to grow the business. And so make sure you feel really tight on that and then be, be able to say it really concisely. Yeah, that's really good advice. In last week's podcast, I uh, had a guest on who's written a book about uh, self-care, essentially, and why it's so important to take care of yourself, because when you don't do that, you fall apart and everything around you falls apart too. But when you're an entrepreneur and you've got all these things on your plate simultaneously, how do you make that time? What does your self-care regimen look like? How do you remind yourself to make sure that you're investing in yourself? Well, sometimes my body reminds me, whether it's like falling asleep at the dinner table or getting sick when like I can tell my immune system's down. Um, I don't like to let it get to that point, but if I'm being honest, sometimes it does. 
the way that I try to stay true to it is the reminder that you said, like you can't pour from an empty cup. And I think we know that, but as an entrepreneur, it's hard to follow that. And the way that I try to is build it into my routine. So my morning routine is a meditation, it's journaling. Do I do it every day? No, but I try and I remind myself that I try to make it a part of my routine. Um, and then it's scheduling. I schedule every other phone call and thing that I do. And so I find blocks of time for myself. Um, and it's interesting how guilty you can make yourself feel like I have no problem scheduling 40 to 50 hours of meetings. And then if I want to take one or two for myself, I'm like, gosh, that's so much. And so really changing my frame of thinking, and I, I'm still struggling with that, as you can tell, but making sure I get it on the calendar and then also making sure that I share that with other people, one, so they'll keep me honest, but two, because I want my team to do the same thing for myself. It doesn't help me or the company if they get burnt out either. And so I, I want them to do the same thing. So I think with me sharing it, hopefully that helps other female entrepreneurs or helps my own team members see that like, it's okay. And you need, everybody needs some time to, to take some time for themselves. Yeah, absolutely. One of the things that I loved about this conversation with Carrie Kampakis that I really, I mean, it's obvious when she said it, but I guess I hadn't really thought about it quite this way, is that the example that we set for our kids in particular, <laughs> the example you're setting for Vivian, the example I'm setting for Ben and Lane, and the example that we set for our team. You know, when we have younger people, not necessarily younger, but certainly younger, who are working with and for us, and the example that we set for them about the importance of making this investment, you just set a tone across all these parts of your life. Mm -hmm which really, you know, it really sort of struck home with me. And I do try to do a good job of that. But, you know, hey, we're human. Mm -hmm. <laughs> you do the best job you can. Um, let's talk a bit about you may put a big premium on reinvesting some of your profits into causes that are important to you. Maybe talk a little bit about the company's commitment to reinvestment. The name Partake came from the idea that I wanted my daughter with food allergies and other people to be able to partake in safe, delicious foods. And then on my journey um, as a woman and as a person of color, as a first time founder, I realized there's a whole bunch more people that need this opportunity to partake. And then I thought about how this company could be a vehicle for radical inclusivity and how we could, even as we grow from a business standpoint, grow our impact that we have on the world. And the two places where we've really chosen to lean in are working to eradicate childhood food insecurity. So in 2021, we partnered with over 56 organizations. This year, we've partnered with No Kid Hungry nationally to commit to provide a million meals to food insecure kids. Um, there's 12 million food insecure children in the US, which given the amount of food waste that we have in this country is absolutely unacceptable. And so I think it's uh, important that, that we do work around that and that we speak to the dismal statistics that exist so that hopefully there's a positive change there. And the other place where we're really focused on investing is increasing diversity in the food space. I think um, in my experience at Coca-Cola, I was often particularly in the room, the leadership rooms, the only minority. And then when I went to start my own company, I said, you know what, I'm going to have people of all ages and ethnic backgrounds and socioeconomic backgrounds. And this is just going to be a melting pot, because I think it's, it's good business um, to have diverse thought around the room. And then when I got the applicant pools, 
it was very homogenous. And I then thought back to my experience and thought, well, if I need people who have this big CPG experience or this fast growth company experience, how can I help students at an earlier stage in their life get that experience so that we can hopefully change the, the face of the food industry? And so we started a fellowship program alongside several historically black colleges and universities in 2020. Um, we've helped nearly 20 students find jobs or internship offers at everything from emerging brands to large companies like Shivani and Mars and Beyond Meat. Um, and so we're super excited about the work that we're doing on both fronts. Yeah. Oh, that's amazing. That's really amazing. Congratulations. I love that. Um, how about what's next for the company? You've got a, a so, so much going on and so many great things, but maybe let's talk a bit about what's next. Sure thing. I think Ideally, what's next is more stores. So you can find us in nearly 10,000 stores now, Walmart, Target, Kroger, Whole Foods around the country. Um, but there's definitely still more room to grow there, more products. So we've started to launch seasonal varieties of our cookies and different form factors. We have a new mini snack pack that you'll start to see pop up in retailers this summer. Um, but I think you'll start to see products outside of our cookies and our breakfast mixes and baking mixes in the future come from our company. And then as the company grows, I hope that we're able to even have a larger impact um, from a perspective around food insecurity and diversity in the food space. That's great. So for those who may live in a place where they are not able to find Partake, we will include a link in the show notes for this episode where they can, you can go as the listener, you the listener, can go directly to the directly to Partake and order on the website. So you won't be missing out, which is amazing. And you can take, take part, Partake in Partake, <laughs> which is very exciting. <laughs> Um, Denise, maybe um, a bit about uh, what's on your reading list these days or particular books that you would recommend uh, for others who are thinking about embarking on, on, on an entrepreneurial journey, books that have been uh, especially helpful to you as you've gotten your footing. Sure. One of my absolute favorites is the book, Believe It. Uh, Jamie Kern Lima, who's the founder mm -hmm. of It Cosmetics, wrote it, and she chronicles her journey and I love that she gets really vulnerable. She talks about the imposter syndrome and the moments of doubt and the moments that she thought, holy cow, is this going to make it? How is it going to make it? Um, and then went on to have over a billion dollar exit. But she talks about all the parts of the journey. And I think oftentimes books gloss over those. And so I'm a huge fan of that one. Yeah, I love that. I love her and I love that book. And I really hope we can get her on She Said, She Said podcast at some point. She's really She's terrific. She's so amazing. Yeah. Yeah. Is, is, uh, is imposter syndrome something that you have struggled with? Oh my gosh. Yes, I still do. It's amazing. I remember one day, it was at, a couple of weeks ago at breakfast, somebody was like giving a description of someone and I walked up to the table and I was like, that person sounds so great. And they were talking about me. And I, was like, <laughs> I literally wanted to crawl under a rock. And I was like, what are you talking about? What do you mean? Not me, no way. And I think often, not to like be sexist, but I think often as women, like we minimize ourselves and we minimize the amazing accomplishments that we have and how fantastic we are. And, you know, I wish for myself and for my daughter and for lots of other women that we could step into the light and like really own that. Um, but it's something I'm working on. I love that. That may be the best story I've ever heard about somebody <laughs> struggling with imposter syndrome. That's the best. I'd really like to know her too. Oh, wait, it's me. It's <laughs> awesome. That's so great. Uh, maybe talk about how you plow through it. 
right? Because it, it would be, it's abnormal for someone not to have those feelings. But I think the question is, what do you do? Like, how do you orient your thinking so that you don't let it crush you when you have those moments of self-doubt? Well, when I had that moment, actually, where I walked up on that group, I think it became obvious that I have some imposter syndrome. And a person who was there who was working with a coach mentioned that their coach had given them the tip of giving, I think they called it an ego book, but like screenshotting when you get an email that shows how fabulous you are, when you accomplish something that's so fantastic. And when you have those moments of self-doubt, literally going back and saying, I did this and I did this and I did this and looking at realistic things that have happened that prove that you actually are pretty incredible. I love that. That's, that's, that's phenomenal advice. Maybe as we sort of close out this conversation, maybe a single piece of advice, a life hack or a mantra, maybe something that you would have told 22 year old Denise, as you were just launching out in your career. I would have told 22 year old Denise to enjoy the ride. I spent so much time and I'm still guilty of wishing for the next thing. You know, when we went on spring break recently, I was like looking up hotels to go for Christmas. Like it's just all like be present in the moment and take it for what it's worth, whether it's good or bad or joyful or sad and feel that feeling and be in that moment because it's in your life for a reason. And every, I'm such a big believer that everything happens for a reason. And so all of those things culminate to like this whole idea of the journey is the destination, like enjoy it. And like, you know, not everything's enjoyable, but like be present and relish in it and take it in and learn what you're supposed to learn from it. And life hack wise, as a working mom, I think before I had kids and before I had a career, I would like judge when people outsource things. And I'd be like, well, why would someone need a nanny? Or why can't somebody cook all their own meals? If you have the luxury of outsourcing things, outsource as much as you can, take as good of care of yourself as you can, because you'll only be a better business leader, partner, parent, whatever it may be, when you're taking care of yourself to, to what we spoke about earlier. And so if that means outsourcing, outsource. I love that. I'm a big fan of outsourcing. <laughs> it, may, it makes everything possible. Yes, yes, yes. I love it. I love it. Well, I've loved this conversation. It's so great to get to know you. Thank you so much for spending the time with us today. Of course. It was like catching up with an old girlfriend. I appreciate the conversation oh. and letting you letting me tell my story. Thank you. I loved it. I really loved it. Friend, thanks so much for joining us today. I hope you loved this conversation with Denise Woodard as much as I did. For more about Denise and Partake Foods, her terrific company, check out the show notes for this episode, episode 189. Also be sure to check out the link to the Southern Cootery. This conversation, of course, is part of our collaboration series that we're doing with the Southern Sea. So be sure to check out all of the conversations in this series as well. Friend, I hope you found this little investment in you to be worthwhile. And I'd love to hear your feedback. What about our, my conversation with Denise resonated most with you? And what are some other topics that you'd like to hear me cover here at She Said, She Said podcast? I would love to hear from you. Until then, take care, have a great week, and I'll talk to you again soon. She Said, She Said podcast is produced weekly by She Said, She Said Media.